Hey folks, hope your Q3 and Q4 is off to a good start. We just wrapped up Founder 500 in Austin, Texas. Hundreds of bootstrap founders showed up. It was an amazing time. I loved meeting so many of you. This interview today is a recording from that session, which you're going to love because now we have visuals, we have the founder teaching, and I made every single speaker include their revenue graphs and real artifacts in their presentations. Without further ado, let's jump in. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. So if you read in the, the, the order of schedule, you see the original title before Nathan affied it with um, this more clickbaity title. Um, but in any case, I'm going to share um, how we got to 6K MRR without a product team. So I'm Rory. I'm the founder and CEO of Trust Keith. We help start up and scale up businesses become and stay data compliant with global data regulation, and we do that by combining access to a dedicated expert who acts as their data protection officer, and our SaaS platform, where they operate and maintain all of their data protection in one place. Now, if you're thinking why Keith, the inspo for the name is actually from a family guy reference, um, the quote is, what is the most unattractive male first name in the English language? It's Keith, and to me, <laughs> It personified the stereotype of compliance and everything that we wanted to, to mix up. So I'm going to share that story. This is kind of particularly relevant for early stage bootstrap founders who are kind of early on in their product journey, or even more established businesses who are thinking about ways to take product to market really leanly. So I'm going to share how we uncovered our market pain, what we chose to go after and go and solve how we validated that proposition, and how we won our first 10K of MRR. Then going to talk through how we built our MVP without a product team. And then finally, how we view our next phase of scale as we approach sort of a million dollars of ARR and beyond. It's a quick snapshot of our revenue. It always looks nice when we switch it from pounds into dollars. Um, unless you look at the exchange rate at the moment, it's sort of, I think last year it was 1.36, I think today it's 1.16. So I thought we were going to be close to a mil, but we're a bit falling away every day. Um, what helped with this business model from a bootstrap perspective is we have one-time setup fees and monthly recurring revenue. So those setup fees provide a really good cash flow for us early on, and they ranged anywhere from... $2,000, we're up to saying our largest is about $35,000. So at every point, it's giving us that retained profit that we can then reinvest ahead of our MRR from a fixed cost perspective, which enabled us to, 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 to bootstrap. Then a quick snapshot of our team. This is just before we actually hired our first product manager in June this year. Um, we sort of very religiously early on in the business took uh, Gino Wickman's Entrel Operating System book to heart which is really an operational playbook for, for building businesses. And one of the things that's core to that is looking at your business's three core functions. So for us, that's operations, so that's internal ops, finance, people, delivery, basically everything of what and how we do with our customers, 
and then finally revenue to sales and marketing. Um, and at every point for us, we've always tried to, to keep it really lean. We've lent on outsourced support where we can. Um, but this is just a snapshot before we kind of bought product in-house. So the first up is just uncovering our value proposition. So that initial phase was, you know, we, I had a bit of a pocket of the market that I thought was interesting, which is around privacy. And this is, you know, 2019, it's only a year after the GDPR came out. So we understood a slight area that we thought would be interesting to go and understand how we might be able to bring a solution to market. But the first part was running customer research. And we were really careful to ensure that we ran it as unbiased as possible. So we did that in a number of ways. The first thing was to bring in a, a freelance product manager on day one. Firstly, I've not done a lot of this before, and I knew leaning on someone who'd done it before was going to A, get a better result, but B, it was going to be unbiased. They weren't going to be out there interviewing looking for certain answers, they were just going to bring the facts. Um, and in terms of bringing the facts, the first part of that was obviously building the right kind of questions. So for us, that was following the MUN test methodology, which is really around sort of unbiased, non-leading questions. There's a snapshot of some of the questions we were asking early on. And really the key here is asking on past behavior, not future hypotheticals. Um, so that was really important for us to kind of pull out real insightful customer data. The next part was getting the interview set up. Uh, it was really important that we had a, like a collective group of people, not just people I already knew. So we needed to go and find lots of cold contacts to, to be involved, people who weren't going to tell us what they thought we wanted to hear. And we were aiming for around 20, 20 or so people. So what do we do? We actually went straight out to LinkedIn. Ultimately, any persona that you want to speak to is on LinkedIn. We're all on LinkedIn, whether it's a compliance manager, a marketing associate, you can find those roles there. But in terms of enticing them on to interviews, that's where we got a little bit cheeky. And I was essentially cold outreach and say, hey, can I stop you a bottle of wine for a 20-minute phone call? Uh, and naturally, that had quite a high conversion rate. Um, but it's useful, it's super scalable, and if you power out you know, 40 or 50 of these invites, you're going to get five or 10 interviews. Um, so it's... And then the final thing, and actually the most important thing, and it's actually something I discovered via the product consultant we worked with, was a product methodology called Jobs to be Done. Now, Jobs to be Done, for those who are unfamiliar, is really a means to pull out in the customer language what they're looking to have solved. So it's really important at every stage, or really you know, in your business right now, of working out what is that core problem we're actually solving. Because anything you go on to build is basically an iteration of, okay, that's the problem, here's how we've planned to solve it, or how we're iterating how we're solving it. But at any point, really staying true to what is that customer problem at its very core is really, really important, particularly as we work back from any kind of product market fit. So an analogy might be, the problem the customer wants is, I need my grass cut. Ultimately, there's tens of ways you can solve that, whether it's lawnmower or certain types of seed or law seeds or lawn care and stuff like that. We're not worried about the solution yet, we're worried about understanding that core pain. So for us, this is what that, the, the ultimate workshops and all the research we did came together to. So this, which is our jobs to be done 2019, it's actually filled in, and I know the template for this is in the, the pack after this. But the things that stand out are, one, it's all in the custom language. We were able to pull everything from this into our initial marketing messaging, um, which is really straightforward. Um, and it was as unbiased as possible because it was led by an external third party who ran this. Um, so for us, in the custom language, we're hearing about companies want to comply with data regulation so they don't get fined. And things like that, just really good sound bites that we knew we could then go and take to them with a draft solution and see if that um, worked. 
So this is, you get a copy of this afterwards if you need it. But it's one of these things where I wouldn't take a new product to market without having done this. And it's worth the time to move slowly to get this right, because then you can sprint later when you've worked out what you actually are going to build. So at this point, we've done the customer research, we've got the jobs to be done lens, we're now ready to start iterating on some potential solutions we're going to try and sell. But first, we needed to determine what type of business we wanted to build. And that's where it was just really intentional. So before I did this business, I spent four years running a different business. It was angel-funded, and it was initially like a skiing meetup app. We launched it in the States. wasn't that viable, came back, and iterated over the next couple of years, ultimately landing in a SaaS customer rewards business. Um, didn't really go anywhere, but at each stage of that pivot, I was really just pulling through, I guess, commercial lessons around, okay, well, I want to go B to B, not B to C. I want annualized contracts. I want a must-have, not nice-to-have. I want a high ACV. All these things just started building this lens of, at least commercially, what kind of solution we wanted to build, what we were solving against. And it's something that's been really, really key, key to us. So with the commercial lens the jobs to be done, all that customer research together, we can now start iterating solutions and trying to sell. And again, even at this stage, we still haven't built anything. We kind of knew at high level how we might go and do it, but we were more concerned about what's the customer actually going to buy before we committed to any, any building, essentially. Do you guys care about valuation right now, specifically your valuation? Do you think you might raise soon or sell a portion of the company? There is no other tool on the internet that you can use to get a better and higher valuation than FounderPath's new valuation tool. We have over 253 deals that went down over the past 30 days, all the revenue numbers, all the valuations, and the multiplier. That way you can go filter the data, find companies that are your same size, what they sold or raised for or at, and then use those as comparables in your decks to argue and debate and get a higher valuation and less dilution, which is the name of the game, less dilution. Check it out today at founderpath.com forward slash products, that's plural, forward slash valuations. Again, both plural, founderpath.com forward slash products, forward slash valuations. So we iterated on our language and our messaging based off the jobs to be done. We went and spoke to customers, we pitched it as if it was ready to go. Um, but then when they signed the contract, we then worried about actually delivering it, which is a constant tension, I think, in entrepreneurism around promising and then knowing how you're going to deliver. And I think Fire Festival is an example where it kind of went the wrong way. So this is where our first 10K of MRR came from, the majority of which came from my personal network. Um, I think personal networks are something that probably all underutilize. Um, but that's where it came from. It's your first shiny check down there. So when it comes to the personal network, it's something I was really, really wanted to get right. It's something I was really focused on even initially. So what I did is I basically mapped out maybe three or four people in my network, one of which was my business coach and three or four friends, I'd say, who I knew would be up for making intros. And I went in LinkedIn and I filtered on secondary connections of them. I basically trolled through them. It's not very scalable, but pulled out a handful of contacts. I was like, they're ICP, they're ICP. Hey, can you make an intro? I put it into a G sheet, made it really straightforward for them drafted them the email, kept it quite like a casual intro kind of vibe. And that's where we got a lot of our initial leads and, and ultimately customers. And it's something that we still do as like a dedicated channel today. So at this stage now, we've 
uncovered our pain, we validated our last solution, we now won our first 10K of MRR. It now gets the second bit I'm going to talk about, which is building our MVP. So much like the kind of theme I'm talking about in the earlier half, it kind of continues around focusing on the validation. So we were more concerned at every stage around validating the price point and things like that. So when it came to building a solution, we weren't really concerned about scalability initially. We are more there about validating the value, even if it was very manual, just to kind of validate it first. So that led us down the road of no code, and ultimately a lot of our initial solution was built on Notion, G Drive, Zapier. Very kind of hustled together, but ultimately it had SaaS mechanics underneath it who were paying on a headcount banding. Uh, we had other modules we could upsell. We knew we'd validated that, okay, we can make it all shiny later, but at least we've got it in their hands. And ultimately, I think that's a, one of the more efficient ways of moving towards any semblance of product market fit. So now we had something in our customer's hand. We knew that we needed to kind of continually improve it as we iterated towards a semblance of product market fit. So for us, that was getting customer feedback. So this is an initial look at our first uh, customer roadmap, which we then kind of littered with feedback opportunities um, to really understand what our customers were thinking. So initially we did that with embedded forms. So that was, you know, you've, you've just had a response from a support query. Hey, how was that? Or we've just implemented our you know, learning management system. Hey, how was that? But what we found is quite similar to MPS, just like the, the response rates weren't very high. And often it's quite rare for someone to really give kind of like a deep, insightful bit of feedback. So the next thing we iterated and something we lead a lot more with today is verbally captured. So actually whenever our customer success uh, was on a call with a customer, you know, we'd have one or two questions at the end. And that enabled us to actually uh, go a bit deeper on that feedback and really pull out, like, okay, that's actually what you mean. Or it's just a lot more long form, which ultimately is not as scalable to capture, but you know, we're still so early stage. We're not worried about scalability yet. We're just worried about getting the facts and the data so we can solve for those. So the next bit is just thinking about ultimately gross margin. So this, again, is just thinking with that commercial lens in mind. Um, and managing you know, the unscalable with the scalable. So we were happy to have unscalable, more manual processes and lower gross margin on day one, knowing that we can go and scale and solve for that later. So at every point, we, we, you know, on our metrics at the moment, we capture gross margin, we do that on a monthly basis, and certainly before we hire anyone in the delivery team. And we have a plan of how and when we're going to achieve the gross margin that we want to do. And I think it's, it's one of these metrics that I don't think gets enough airtime. Um, it's certainly not really a vanity metric people shout about, but particularly as a bootstrap business, net profit, gross margin, this is really the, the quality of your business. Um, so keeping that front of mind um, is really important, or else you're just going to get a nasty surprise if you've made certain assumptions, you scale up and you realize, oh, we can never achieve that gross margin. So... That's the end of the second, but the third part is just to really talk through how we're viewing scaling moving forward um, as we approach the mill of ARR and, and beyond. So we have a belief internally, this again is like an extension of our commercial lens, that we'd rather have fewer customers paying us a lot more than thousands of customers paying us very little. Um, and I have friends who run task companies, maybe they have you know, 10,000 users paying $4 a month. And I'm thinking, what, what's harder as a business to scale or to acquire customers going after 50 enterprise accounts, ultimately, that are going to pay 100K a year or acquiring 10,000 businesses? It's, it's just very different 
models. And obviously, a lot of this is going to depend on your own go-to-market experience. But for us, it was you know we, we're more used to SMB and, and enterprise sales anyway. Now we're starting to solve from how do we move our ACV from circa 25k dollars a year to 100k. So we're going back into our top accounts and saying, okay, where can we add more value? What do we need to do to be able to charge $8,000 a month, etc. And this is you know the the route we've chosen because it's it's not very none of these routes are straightforward, but it just feels a little bit more tangible to us. We don't have to suddenly achieve some kind of unicorn sort of growth channel. We really can just keep grinding what we're currently doing. It feels more within the realms of possibility, um, which for us internally just feels a lot more motivating. So the next thing is then thinking about how we're iterating our product. And again, I've spoken before around, you know, up until recently, our product's been very kind of MVP. It's more of a no-code. We've already validated the, the value that we're going to be providing. And now that we have this product manager in-house, we've now got resources to be like, right, okay, let, let's get at it. So our approach has been thinking about it uh, much more as like a product evolution, like a very iterative approach. And for us, that means functionality by functionality, like an iterative product development process. So we want to essentially leverage all the existing value that we've done as opposed to going back out, trying to boil the ocean of reviewing everything we, our solution currently does. We'd rather leverage it and, and, and follow where the latest customer feedback and value is coming from and double down on that and reinvest our product resources in that. So for us as a business, we implement the infrastructure for customers to, to maintain data compliance, but we know that a big outcome for them is winning due diligence. So instead of rebuilding everything we're already doing, we're looking at an initial pocket of functionality on top of that, which for us is due diligence and due diligence management and kind of verified compliance. So for us, that's what we're focusing on as opposed to trying to do everything at the same time. You know, ultimately, at some point, we're going to come back and, and, and turn it all into a really shiny enterprise suite. But until then, this is, this is our approach. I think it kind of lends itself to any, I guess, lean budget um, as well. So the final part of scaling, we hear this all the time, is around just surrounding ourselves with, with people who have been there and done it. Um, and that's particularly important for myself as a solo founder, um, trying to find people who have really been there and done it, and I'm not just hearing it from the team. So we've been doing that sort of things. And then the second part, again, is finding those advisors who can also double up and coach with our existing team and give them a higher leverage. If they've not done it all the way, you know, one to 10 million of ARR of sales, how can we bring in someone who has so they can provide those insights? So in terms of those advisors, we've really broken it down around three core functions. This is, again, is how we've structured the business off the back of the Gina Wickman book. So something like the revenue advisor, it's really important to us that they have sold to our, you know, the, the kind of average customer value that we sell to or to a similar ICP. Uh, and they've got that go-to-market experience that much further ahead than us. Um, and there's quite a few kind of high-leverage activities any of these advisors can have, and one of them is particularly around supporting hiring. For the second one, it's around operations. So there's some things in here, again, there's a theme of finding someone who's been there and done it already, but one thing we found that's quite useful is having a bit of a third party who can, who, who can mediate some of the remuneration committee. So as a solo fan, I don't necessarily have to be debating with team around salaries. I know that I've got you know, a third party where I can kind of mediate it with and it's, it's not as sort of confrontational. And that's really helpful. And then finally, from a product perspective, uh, it's just, you know, bringing in any advisor, but particularly someone who's done it before, is going to help make those key decisions, particularly around short-term and long-term investments, what kind of technical debt is, is appropriate for the stage you're at, and just kind of thinking ahead around how you're spending the resources that you do have.
So that's a wrap. Uh, I've walked you through how we validated our proposition won our first 10K of MRR, um, how we took our MVP to market, and how we're viewing our scaling. I think the kind of the, the key takeaways I leave with you that are important to me are being super intentional, particularly with that commercial lens, uh, keeping an eye on your gross margin, and pulling product from your customer's mouth. And yeah, I'll be around the rest of today. Those you can hit me up on LinkedIn. <laughs>